Hello, I am Stephanie Luo. Welcome to my podcast, Service Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addict to being underwater. During the service time today, I spoke with Gary Tyson, a British Army veteran turned chronic diving junkie. He called himself a hustler in life as he experiments different ways of making photos, videos, land and underwater, and more importantly, finding ways to fund his love for travels and gadgets. When you hear him explaining why shooting a wedding is more stressful than shooting in Iraq, you may find that being a hustler in life is an understatement. I'll try and stop swearing. <laughs> it's okay. Swearing is fine. I can actually say that this has the Adele language. <laughs> okay. I'll try not. Okay. So thanks for um, agreeing to do this podcast with me. Thank you very much for the invitation. I want to start with where was your last memorable dive? My last memorable dive was 11 days ago. I was diving on Alma Jane wreck in Porto Galera, which is the biggest wreck in Porto Galera, but still a relatively small wreck compared to what you have in Coron and other places. But honestly, every dive is memorable for one reason or another. And what was that wreck like? It used to be a cargo ship that used to take San Miguel beer from the mainland to Porto Galera. And it was sunk on purpose. I think, don't quote me on that, I think 27 years ago as a training wreck specifically. So it's in the middle of one of the bays, it's down at 30 meters and because it's been there that long, it's now a very healthy reef haven as well. I just love wreck diving for me going down the line or just even taking students down on their advance to their deep dive or their wreck dives. For me, it's always a revelation. You die for people when they just go down a line and see that shape coming out of the blue and then getting to swim around. There's loads of batfish. It's just a perfect training wreck. And it's just a nice wreck to just hang out and go play on basically for half an hour. And diving is actually a new passion of yours or new addictions of yours. Relatively new. Yeah. Only been diving four and a half years, I think something like that. What triggers you to start diving or to go into diving anyway? So. I was in Porto Galera, moved to the Philippines not long before, and I went to White Beach in Porto Galera, which is like a normal tourist beach. And it was a bit of a crappy weekend. So I was coming back to Manila and I got to the port in Porto Galera and I saw this dive boat pulling in with loads of scuba divers in wetsuits and they're all giving each other high five. They've got big beanie smiles and I'm waiting to get on a little boat to take me back to the mainland. Cause I'd had a bit of a boring weekend. It wasn't my scene, like the normal beach full of karaoke bars and all that. And I just thought I need to get on that boat. That's basically <laughs> what I thought. Honestly, I just saw these people and they just looked so happy and energized. And I thought I need to get on that boat. So I drove back to Manila. I think one or two days later, I just turned around and drove back. Didn't even know what dive shop it was got off the boat, walked to the dive shop where that boat pulled up, which is right next to the harbor, walked in and just said, okay, how do I get qualified or certified? <laughs> and the guy said, this is what you do. Da, 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 da. So I just paid it, S stayed there for four or five days, whatever, did my open water. <clears throat> and immediately from the first moment, as I put my head under and descended, I just thought, why have I waited so long to try this? It was just amazing. I was like hooked from the first second I went underwater in the ocean, literally hooked and haven't slowed down. 
It's just got more and more intense as it's gone forward in those four years. But I've gone all the way through, done some tech diving courses. I do a lot of side mount stuff. I'm an instructor, MSDT, all paddy stuff. Yeah, I just love it and I can't get enough of it, basically. Have you ever thought about why? Yeah, why is quite easy for me. It's like, I wouldn't say high strung, but I'm a bit OCD and I run around, my head's all over the place doing jobs and I need to do a lot of exercise to keep myself chilled out, I think. Because in my previous life, as you met in Hong Kong, I used to be in the army. So I lived in a very regimented lifestyle all my life. And then in Hong Kong, when I was living there, it's the same, very busy. And I thrive on having lots to do all the time. When I moved to Philippines, things slowed down a little bit. I'm still working, but rent's cheaper, life's cheaper to live. So things were a lot slower. So then I find myself getting a bit frustrated because I'm not as busy or not as high paced lifestyle. So I needed to find something other than just jogging and swimming to keep myself like really buzzing. And then when I found diving, it's like a combination of keeping me busy. It's like my yoga, if you like, I've never tried yoga because I can't even touch my toes. I just think like I get it. How people who do yoga say they can totally Zen out do this specific stuff. This is exact how I feel when I go underwater, I'm like completely unplugged from the matrix and I'm so chill. At the same time, it's now a job as well. So I can earn money. I can Zen out. I love every second of it. So it never feels like work. It always is just, I feel so privileged to be able to do it. It's just like the perfect combo. I think that's the why it provides me with all those different states of mind in one scenario. And of course, with what's happened recently in COVID, just been able to get underwater and get away from all the bullshit. It's like yeah. the perfect place to go. Actually, it is like you say, it's a nice combo because uh, in diving, your military lifestyle, that military DNA, the discipline, the routines, you need to bring that into scuba diving. You need yeah. to be very disciplined with checking your gear, knowing what you're doing, scouting the environment, be 360 aware of your surrounding. And on top of that, when you are a working instructor, you need to pay attention to people around you. So it's a, it's a bit of oxymoron because you have all that stuff going on. It's very busy and yet you're mm. doing it on the water. And at the same time, you feel very sad. Yeah, exactly. It's perfect. It's perfect for yeah. you. And I can relate to that totally because obviously my other life is corporate and I'm being a lawyer by training that my brain is constantly moving, thinking. Yeah. Even though when people from the outside, they may think, oh gosh, she's always calm. Actually, it's because of the scuba diving trainings that I've had and I love it. I don't dive as often as you do. Like you're like counting out only 11 days of water. How ridiculous mm. is that? And but for me, whenever I can go down to the water, it's like, phew, it's just yeah. there now. Just so in the ocean. Yeah. I think the other thing that you also do is that you're like one of the few people I know who basically work as a photographer. Yeah. All your work in life, effectively, yeah. even when you were in the army. Part of my career was as a photographer and videographer in the army. Then you move into commercial space and start to do a lot more other creative stuff. So if we were looking at this is your life book and looking at your stop image library, mm. you actually have an encyclopedia of different photographic style. I don't know what my style is. That's my problem. <laughs> when people say to me, what's your style? I'm like, I have no idea. Oh, that's a really, it's a really bad thing. When I was in Hong Kong, when we met, 
you know, I think we went to India. So I used to love, of course, the commercial work I do because as a commercial photographer or videographer, you shoot wherever you're paid to shoot, whether it be weddings. I shot a lot of weddings when I first moved to Hong Kong. I tried to get rid of that as soon as I could, because that was proper high stress. So to me, shooting a wedding is more stressful than shooting in Iraq. Literally, it's just super, <laughs> yeah, bridezillas, do my head in. But it was good money. Beggars can't be choosers, right? When you're working commercially to pay rent, you need to work, get paid good money. You're going to do whatever you need to do. So I did a lot of commercial projects, whether it's weddings, aerials, sports, portraiture, and then the studio came and it was a lot of commercial portraiture for banks and investment companies. We had a lot of that. Then I realized that was probably the best money. She had headshots in the studio, like super simple, but just churning out lots of that. So we did a lot of that stuff. And that's when the, the travel workshops became a big thing for me. Cause that was at that time I wasn't into scuba. So it was like, okay, what's my escapism going to be travel. Okay. How do I get other people to pay for me to travel? So it's how can I basically finance my passion at that time, which was, I want to travel. And then I applied the teaching skills that I learned in the army as an instructor and other things to cross train that to training people to be photographers. Okay. So we can do that. And then we can do that in Hong Kong, but we can also do that in India, Cambodia, Mongolia, wherever. And that's when the workshop started and it became super popular and that was good money and it was great. And then once I came here, a little bit less travel photography, maybe, but still commercial work and a lot of sport work. Then when I went underwater, it was like, right now I need to bring cameras underwater and figure out that was like, I was learning again from a beginner perspective about all those other elements to shoot underwater and how light changes and all the rest of it. So it was amazing for me to relearn my own trade. And now I'm obviously teaching photography underwater because I know the basics of it from my previous life anyway. And now that I've, I wouldn't say master, I'm never going to say the word mastered, but now that I've got my skill set down to what I want and I've got all the equipment, all the crazy expensive naughty cam rubbish. So I'm in a position now where I can bring new divers, especially people that I've taught. The next question is usually, okay, now I want to do photography. I want to get a small camera and I want to learn so I can bolt that on. So you have that kind of USP, if you like, not just a diver, not just an instructor, but also a professional photographer and videographer, so you can use those skills. So when you say, what's your style? I have no idea. I just shoot whatever I can shoot. I have no real preference. I think I'm more like just a hustler in life who just figures it out as it goes along, apply it however it needs. So you've got to use your people skills to figure it out and just do it. And I'm sure it's the same for you in all aspects of life. Sometimes you just got to use what you already know and apply it to these new things and adapt and figure it out. Um, that's where I'm but, at. Um, that actually just a reflection of, you said you put it down as a hustle in life, but I think it's you being creative, that you're confident with your craft. You, you come yeah. from a solid foundation. And you've been to a school that gave you a really good training and not just on the skill, but also on the value system, the, the sense of integrity. And then you bring that into every aspect of work. To me, photography is the medium for communications, telling story. And the way I see your work and the entire different portfolios of different type of creativity is just you adapting to the environment that you were in at that given moment in time. And yeah. you were telling the story. So that very much goes back to the root of your days in the army, because you were not exactly the one sitting in the office with aircon, that kind yeah. of army officer. You were trained to combat and being in the, uh, 
war zone. Are you open to reminisce your those days? In military photography, you mean? Yeah. I think the first time I met you was then you sharing your story in the British Army, the journey and some of the photos that you were able to share at that time. You actually gave me a different perspective. One photo to this day still make an imprint in my mind was the photo of a soldier carrying the gun and tripod walking on the field in Afghanistan. Green. Mm. It's a green field. But before I saw that photo, Afghanistan to me is always dusty. Yeah, those places are very different. To be honest, though, working as a photographer in the military was the best opportunity you could ever wish for. And at the time, we were always complaining, right? We're like, ah, we have to go here, we have to go there. But the opportunities that it afforded, the people we work with, the military style of training, all those things just give now, in hindsight, it's just like the best training ground ever, whether it be adventure training, military stuff, working in Iraq or Kosovo, Sierra Leone, all these kind of places. Now I realize that they gave me a lot of advantages in certain ways in life in general. So yeah, I always talk about it with other people about the military photography. And I think some of the skill set you get when you put it all together, you just can't really compare it to going to art school and do photography and not say anything bad about those guys because they are obviously amazing at what they do hundred percent. But the other life skills that come with the military for me, I can't really figure out how you apply that in civilian life. You know what I mean? The problem it creates is it makes you completely OCD because you're used to being in a regimented fashion. So a lot of people joke to me about how I'm like, like they come to my house or something and they're like, it's like a barracks, but so always too clean, too organized and I'm arranging pillows and people are sitting down, don't touch them. We've met. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. Having said that, let's just look at that in scuba diving and mm. because you're OCD by nature and you definitely bring that into your scuba diving. Uh, your oh, yeah. arms, but I mean, safe diving practice, and also when it comes to your teaching. So I'm interested to hear how do you implement just a general perception that most of the scuba divers recreational their skills exactly take the point to them. They're just a holiday thing. They just pick up do something for normality factor. You would start with a mass of people getting open water, and then you only get people who actually really fall in love with being on the water. We'll continue on with the trainings and that number shrinks down little people like me i've died with people who are not trained under nawi and then see that how they've been trained but yeah. lots of nerve-wracking moments but for you even though you're under paddy i think you've brought in a different style yeah so i mean can you see the difference I, i'm not bad mouthing anyone else but really just to see how you operate differently yeah what i try and do of course you have to adapt your teaching method to each individual, right? Because some people prefer a more, not strict necessarily, but a little bit more regimented, a little bit more structured. Of course, we're still following all the normal guidelines and the requirements and all the rest of it. And I actually don't want to sound like a Paddy spokesperson, but I actually really like the Paddy e-learning, the structure of it. I find it very good because there's no way for them to shortcut stuff. Like in books, I think people can shortcut too easily with the e-learning, they have to go through it in a much more thorough way in my own experience. So I know by the time they get to the water, they actually usually have a good understanding of the theory and I make them do their exams with me rather than on their own. So we can discuss it if they go through and they get stuck on anything. Anyway, so going back to once again, the water, I've taught one of my best friends, I taught his 10 year old daughter, for example, I was a bit nervous about that because 
like teaching somebody's kid is just scary, right? Turned out she was probably my best student ever because she just did every skill copy paste. I thought, how is she going to do free flow? How is she going to do CISA? How is she going to do this? How is she going to do that? And she just did it. Mask removal. Boom, boom, bubbles. Yeah. Like she's even copied all the hand signals like, ah, yeah. Okay, now I'm going to do this and now I'm going to put it here and order it like this. And it's just what? I couldn't believe how easily she did it. Perfect. First time, every single skill perfectly. So I made her do every skill about three or four times because I couldn't get my head around how she just did it without even thinking. Because I guess they don't have any fear of what could go wrong if they suddenly breathe through the nose or whatever. So it was a really interesting lesson for me as well. But then I also have other students who I know, one of my best friends from the States who came over to do his open war, we'd been old friends for years and he wanted me to teach him more strict because he'd gone to a military school. He's not ex-military, but he'd gone to a military academy or something. And he loved that kind of structure. So he was like, just do it like that. So we had a bit of banter going through and a little bit more strict and even taking the piss a little bit sometimes, You're just teasing because we're friends. Of course, that doesn't work with everyone. You might have someone else who's a little bit more sensitive and you approach that in a different way. So I adapt it to however, but what I have done is I try and make sure as best I can that everyone is really up to scratch by the time they finish the over water to the best that I can teach them to make them safe. I've seen, as you said, you don't want to bad mouth others, but I've seen other, not instructors, I'm not going to say bad instructors, but I've seen divers who turn up at dive shops oh, that I'm open water and I see them get off the boat and they just go straight to the bottom. And then they just fully inflate and go flying up. And it's just, what, how did you, they're not even discover scuba standard, but somebody certified them. And I find that scary to say the least. What I have done here is every single person, I think everyone I've taught more or less who's done open war, I've also taught their advanced. And then several of those have been going on to do rescue, specialty deep courses, side mount courses, stuff like that. Same as what I used to do with the photography in Hong Kong is building networks. I don't like the quick, okay, do your open water, tick, bomb, see you later. Basically they become friends. They come on dive trips with me. A lot of them are now into photography and then just building this kind of, not a little army, if you like. I do take it personally. If I teach someone and they don't become a good friend, I feel like I fail. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's just the way I am. I like to build friendships, networks. Okay. Want to do another course? Want to come? It's not just to try and keep income coming. It's nothing to do with that. It's more about just building a network because all my work through this world here comes through word of match. It's like they go back to Manila, tell their friends and they bring like that. And for me, that's the best way to move forward. Hope I've answered your question a little bit there. Oh yeah, it does. You share that really nice stories about how you connect with people, even with scuba diving and you just pick up a new career, to be honest. Yeah. It's almost like the same skills, the same people skills or your way you approach the work isn't that different from teaching photography or shooting commercially. It's a lot of people, you're trying to use your people interaction, I don't know, say skills, because some people joke to me that I'm too, oh, you're too harsh or whatever, but I don't believe that myself because I've really worked with a very diverse group of people from all walks of life. And usually it's worked quite well, 99% of cases. So yeah, I think you just say you, you learn a new skill. And you just apply it, you apply that same attitude and commitment and 
integrity is a word you use, which I love. I like that. And you apply that and hopefully it shines through and people see that. And then they come back or they recommend you. I always remember, you'll remember when we went to India, I always send a personal survey when I do a workshop to everyone. A good friend of mine from Hong Kong, Chris, he's like a psychologist as well. And he helped me write this survey. And he said, there's 10 or 15 questions on this survey that you send to people after you've worked with them on a workshop, not talking about commercial work for a workshop or a training package, whatever. And the only question that matters was like question three, would you recommend this person? If the answer is no, everything else is irrelevant. So I remember you specific answer you put on one of yours was there's too much sand in the desert. <laughs> Do you remember that? I think we had a joke yeah. about it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there's too much sand. Cause I know you were referring to all the sand getting in your gear and camera and all that. Yeah. It's just funny to read it and thought, okay, can't really fix that. That's the tar desert. <laughs> but yeah, but it's interesting. Yeah. But that was meant to be chicken tongue kind of conversation. Yeah, well, no, no. But it was funny and it was like, but of course, I think you did hopefully tick the box saying, I recommend, I would recommend. And that's why we're still in touch now. So that's how it's got to be. It has to be. I really think if somebody just leaves after a course and doesn't even bother following up, I just hate it. I feel like I've completely failed if that person doesn't become a friend. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to develop the relationship. And I feel like if we have a relationship, a good friendship, as we're going through the process, then it's going to make you a better diver because you're going to have more trust. It's not, I'm not just reading, okay, do this. Okay. Okay. Tick, you've done it. All right. Thanks. Off you go. Got paid. Thank you very much. Next. I hate that concept. Now I understand Especially here, I see a lot of instructors, it's about volume because they need to survive on that income, right? They just need loads of income. They need loads of divers. So they haven't got time to develop those relationships. And I completely understand it. That doesn't make them a bad instructor because they're still going through the process fully, but that's just not how I teach. I already have my income from my photography and video work from Hong Kong and from the US and from the UK. So I can actually take a little bit of a step back. This is not my main income. You know, the joke about. What's the difference between a pizza and a dive instructor? You heard that one? No, I don't actually. A pizza that can feed a whole family. So there's that one. And then somebody joking aside, if you're just teaching diving, you've got to be, you've got to be teaching volume to actually earn a really good money. And another guy said to me, he runs a dive shop in the U S he was here recently. And he said to me, oh, I've got one for you. He said, you know how you make a million dollars running a dive shop? Don't I have? He said, start with 2 million, wait a year done like that. So basically going to lose half the money. It's true. I think it's the business that really is supported by passion. Yeah. Military, nobody does any of those trades to get rich. It's more a calling or a passion, right? Yeah. I need to be a lawyer like you. You need to train me up. No. I can earn some real money. Trust me. There's a different kind of story. You and I can chat another time about that. Um, I'm sure it's hard work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it still has that sense of then discipline that comes with it. And That's good. diving. So there are lots of different types of diving. We obviously have explored a lot of them. And I'm actually very jealous of you, or envious is probably a better word, because you're in the land, you're 20 minutes away from the, uh, the closest dive site, and then you are surrounded by all other diving professionals, and then you get access to try out different things in such a short space of time. Now you're doing site mounting, doing tech dive. So forget about teaching and stuff like that. But if you were to organize a diving trip that just for yourself, 
Mm. What would that diving trip be like for you? Just for yourself? I think if I was going for myself, I would probably be doing a combination of side mount tech and videography on wrecks. So somewhere like Truck Lagoon is somewhere I haven't been yet. It's on my wish list. So if you said to me, what would I do on my own? It would be like, okay, let's go a little bit deeper. Let's do a little bit of planning, go to some deeper wrecks or maybe one or two. I've got a couple of friends here who are into it. I'm only up to tech 45, right? So I can do limited tech diving, but I, I understand the gas planning and all the rest of it and deco and all the rest of it. So I can go down a bit deeper, hang out a bit deeper, take some extra oxygen and all the rest of it and plan a tech dive and then combine that with videography maybe go with a couple of other like-minded people like yourself who are trained in that scenario. I really love wreck diving. I love the history on the military wrecks because obviously there's a military thing there, I guess. Visually for me, I'm more into wide angle, even though I live next to Anilau, which is more macro, which I also shoot. But if you said to me, should we go and shoot macro or should we go and shoot a wreck? There's no brainer for me every time. I'm always going to go wide angle. Mm. So that would be my preferred dives. I think is wrecks and big stuff. Stuff is in fish as well. Right? So where do you get your tech dive training done? Moal Boal. Well, mm -hmm. I call it Mole Ball, but apparently it's pronounced Moal Boal. Oh, really? Um, I've always called it Mole Ball. Yeah, me too. Well, anyone who's English or speaks English is going to say Molo, but it's Moal Boal. So <clears throat> when I went to Moal Boal, I met up with Lee Butler, who's like this tech wizard, the course director, blah, 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 blah. He's qualified up to the hill in or many different agencies. We'd been chatting before I took a group there and then we met and we got on very well. He's also English and we just got on to have a few beers. We're like very good friends now. And it's always been like, okay, if I'm going to do my training, I want to know, I trust the instructor thoroughly and I want someone with some pedigree, right? Excuse me. So when I did my IDC in Malapasqua, I had a course director, Walter Schmidt, amazing guy, Argentinian, Spanish guy, also a super tech diver as well. So he had all the skills. He was my course director, absolutely amazing guy. And when we'd finished the course, he had a friend coming from Wild who was Lee Butler, this British guy who I'd heard of and we'd met online, I think. So we hung out, got to know each other. And then I went to Wild Wild and I was like, I want to learn side mount. So he taught me side mount. I would say I uh, teach in a similar way myself now. And I obviously learned a lot of my teaching skills from him, just watching how he teaches me. I just soak it all up and I just loved the way he was. And of course, I just massively respect his abilities as well. So I did the side mount with him and then I started that practicing a lot. And then I was like, okay, I want to try some tech more. The tech for me is more, more about, I never want to teach tech, at least not now. But what I want to do with tech is if there's a wreck that we want to go to in Subic Bay or somewhere, and it's just a little bit deeper, I want to know that I can go there safely. I have the skill set to be able to plan it and do it properly without just blagging it. And that's why I wanted to learn tech. So I did my tech courses there with him. And Lee is now, I'm not sure if his job title is regional sales manager or regional manager or something like that, but he's now employed full-time as Paddy. He's done all sorts of jobs in the industry. And now I like to tease him because he's like a commercial corporate guy now. We just love teasing him about it. He's wearing different kind of dry suits, basically. It is, yeah, he's very much so in that world now. But of course, that doesn't change anything about his diving. He's still a diving ninja as far as I'm concerned. And he's a brilliant ambassador and influencer for me. I love working with those kind of people because they just inspire me to be like them. Sounds yeah. a bit weird. Like you do when I grow up. 
That's fine. We need to have somebody that inspires us. I, I think one thing is when, as an instructor for me anyway, that ongoing continuing personal development is quite important. And it's learning from other instructors. It's also an ice opening. Actually, I was in Bali to do a, a diving course and yeah. I was doing the GUE fundamental course. So yeah. if you like your military staff, that really is another level. Yeah, I know a few guys who do that. It's not an automatic pass, right? There's proper pass fail stuff, right? So you yeah. have to be very yeah. strict. I love it. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be my next thing to do. And like you say, learning from other instructors, you should never stop because yeah. I know other instructors who say that, oh, why would I do that? I'm already an instructor. You need to put yourself in the student's position. It'll actually make you a way better instructor yourself by not every week, just now and then put yourself in that boat. And then you think, oh yeah, I need to really slow down as an instructor when I'm talking about X, Y, and Z, because suddenly when I'm doing a new skill set, you realize these people, when we're talking about clearing a mask, like, why can't they understand it? You need mm -hmm. to really go back to the basics and realize that everybody starts somewhere. It's yeah. easy to forget that. I'm conscious of time and I know that you've got other stuff that you need to do as well. So I'm going to ask you the questions that I asked everybody. First question, out of your dry bag where you pack for all the non-diving stuff, what are the top three items that you will always take with you on the diving trip? Woolly hat for surface and the horse. Ah, okay. Yeah. My phone, not because I want to check Facebook, but the watch tells me my in and out points of the GPS. So I need to check it on the Garmin dive log as soon as I come out, because I'm just too gadget mad. I like to see that information, even though I know where I am and I can see where I am on the boat. I want to see the little dots on the map and see how far we've drifted and all that rubbish. So phone, woolly hat, keep me warm and my coffee grinder, because if you're on the boat, so I bring my own beans and they grind my own coffee on the boat. So yeah, got to have a little bit of home comforts. Oh my God. What would you be like if you didn't have your coffee? It's all about preparation. Anyone can be uncomfortable and cold, warm, yeah. fresh coffee, and have all the information laid out on the graph. Done. Perfect. That's your little comfort set up. Next question. What are the three top tips on safe diving practice that you would give? Okay. Safe diving. I'd say, okay, make sure your equipment is well-maintained. Obviously a lot of people I see with broken bladders and stuff that don't check or regs need servicing. So making sure your equipment serviceable properly before you go anywhere near even getting in the car. Second thing, setting up your gear. I don't like this valet diving. I think the term is coined where dive shop sets up all your equipment. And the first time you actually see it is when you're on the boat already at a dive site, ready to go in. I hate that. I know people who and they're going to probably give me shit when they hear this because they'll know who I'm talking about who say, I forgot how to set it up. I forgot how to do that. And they know it super pisses me off, especially if I've trained them and then they just get back into this routine of letting everyone else sort their gear out. It's, you're an accident waiting to happen as far as I'm concerned. If you don't know your gear set up properly, you do it, just do it because it's like, why would you want somebody else? It's like saying, I've packed your parachute. You're good. It's, oh yeah, no worries. I'll just jump out of the plane, get your shit together before you go anywhere near the water. And then third. Just making sure, do your basic checks just before you go to the water again with your buddies. We all get lazy and complacent because we think we're all well-trained and all the rest of it. So we sometimes don't even check our airs turned on properly. People do that. It's quite common. Right? So mm -hmm. just make, going back to that basics thing of just doing those very quick, the 20 second buddy checks and just making sure we're good to go just before we go in. It's all foundation stuff, open water mm -hmm. stuff, really making sure everything's good before you go in and then just going to eliminate so many potential problems with 
doing those three checks, if you like. Yeah, the check actually got me thinking when I was doing my training a couple of weeks ago, one of the routine they have is say above water, once you set up your gear, you do your functionality check. So yeah. everything works. Obviously, do you set up so everybody has the same stuff in the same place? So it's, good, it's good practice. Your dive computer on the right, your compass on the left. And even for a single time, you still have the same thing. And yeah. certain things you wouldn't take because it's not required. But then the general setup is the same. Before you descend on the water, you actually check again, make sure there's no bubble. You're doing bubble your bubble them. checks, your S drills yeah. and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you check your body. If there's a minor like champagne bubble comes out, you decide if you still can do the dive or not. So those are the good discipline to have. Like you say, people tend to get quite complacent and then got spoiled by the resort who so eager to pamper the guest. It's not really the resort's fault. It's because they're just trying to make it a more relaxed experience for the guests. Yeah. But it's actually dangerous, I think, because people forget. They literally forget how to set up their own gear. Which way does the regs go on? Upside down? tanks back to front, are there weights in the pockets? Things like that's like, what are you doing? How can you not know that? Crazy. Of course, like everything, a skill fade. So if someone does it on a course and they're going through, they're obviously learning all those other things. So they'd get a lot of overload. If they do that and then they don't dive for six months and then they go back to the dive shop. They won't remember any of that. They have to redo it. Right? Yeah. Some people are more happy to just let someone else do it. Yeah, you do it. Do you really know that O-ring's good? Do you really know? Because I'm not convinced that every dive shop is going to check that as thoroughly as they might because it's not them who's going to be using it. Yeah. yeah. And we have this other joke where we say, remember, the dive guide is paid to take you to the dive site. It's not paid to bring you back. That's on you. As dramatic as it sounds, it's actually not a bad thing to remember. The responsibility ultimately is always on you. You've automatically thrown that away on the beginning. You've already bypassed that step. Yeah. So it's a fail, right? Yeah, totally. Next question. What is your greatest fear? Underwater. My greatest fear. Uh, anything in life really is not just that underwater. I suppose one would, as one would be not doing something when you have the opportunity to do it. I'm not into that. So if you have an opportunity to do something, you should definitely try it. And so I don't uh, be not do something because of fear. If it's uh, like people, I know a lot of people I speak to inquire about diving and say, oh, I'm a non-swimmer. I want to learn or I'm too scared. And what happens if my air goes and all this? And I think you can't live your life being scared of everything. How do you even, how do you even enjoy it if you don't try it or that kind of, I know there's loads of quotes about it. But I've always tried to live or tr I hopefully try and live my life or just try it, push your own boundaries a little bit and experience that. So I would hate to succumb to that thing where so I'm not going to do that because I'm scared, even though I just said rebreathers scare me. So I haven't tried it. I would still try it, of course. And I just don't want too much of a tight ass to pay for one. So I'm not going to buy one. You shouldn't let yourself be held prisoner to your own fears because that's the, what's the point of being alive if you're just going to not try it. So I guess that. I don't really worry about underwater, like the classic one where sometimes I'm scared of my air going or something like that. I don't worry about that, to be honest, because I generally think my gear is well maintained. It's all checked. And usually I'm diving with people I trust and I'm completely confident in my friends, buddies, that if the shit hits the fan, I'm pretty confident that I should be able to sort it out. And if I can't and I don't, that's my problem because I didn't prepare. I've, it's my own fault. If something, if a catastrophic fail happens, it's either just really bad luck mm -hmm. or it's my own fault because something's, I haven't prepared something in the right way. So 
I accept that responsibility. So I'm not really worried about that. Hmm. But what here would you say, really you say, you acknowledge your fear. There's a fear, you acknowledge it. Yeah, I respect but, it and acknowledge it, yeah. And what do you do to overcome that fear? Because I think we talk about fear as one thing, but talking about managing fear is something else. There's a famous quote I read years ago, and it says, I'm scared to jump because I might fall. And the reply is, but what if you fly? Or something like that. There's lots of quotes like that. And I always feel like that. It's, you never know how it's going to feel or what's going to happen unless you try. So to sit there and say, oh, I'm not doing that. That's too dodgy or I'm not scared of doing that. It's, you're just closing off a whole universe of experience based on a fear that doesn't really exist. I rather think to myself, okay, what's it going to be like? Yeah, of course there's going to be potential hazards and all the rest of it. We're going to dive at this dive site. The current's really strong. Okay, I'll bring my jet fins. I might not take my camera. I'll make some preparations to make it an easier experience, but I definitely wouldn't say let's not dive it unless of course there's obviously crazy dangerous waves or whatever, you know what I mean? But I'll do yeah. my own risk assessment and maybe I won't take certain people with me or whatever. But for me, if there's a little bit challenging conditions, I usually, I like that because it's okay. Might be bigger fish because more current. Or it's going to be a bit of a different experience. We have to do negative entry or we have to do this or we have to go there or whatever. I usually like it, but not to say don't do it haphazardly or take unnecessary risks, but just make a plan and just figure it out. Take the calculated risk. Yeah. If you need to. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's your greatest extravagance? My greatest extravagance. What do you mean as in equipment wise? Anything. This is the open questions. <laughs> what comes to your mind? What do you mean by extravagant? Something that's like unnecessary, like purchase or something, or is that what you mean? Or experience or whatever. I'm not sure really. When it comes to like equipment, everyone jokes to me, like I'm a gadget man. I wouldn't say I like, spend money on equipment, but I realized over the years that to do what I do properly with regards to photography, this applies to topside and underwater. Having the best equipment is not just a blase thing of, oh, I've got the best camera, therefore I am. I don't believe in that. But what I do believe is having the best equipment helps me do my job easier, right? Because I now have good equipment, not say the best top, but having really high level gear, especially underwater. Of course, all my equipment is now Nauticam housings because I've had other housings in the past and they've all flooded. Every single one has flooded. I'm not going to name brands. I've had plastic housings that are flooded, destroyed cameras. It's not cool. And it, it's going to happen. And it's like that saying, buy cheap, buy twice. So I end up with the top of the range, if you like equipment, which is just solid. So that's an extravagance in the terms of equipment because it's very expensive. I like to use good dive computers. I like to use integrated air because I like to have all that extra information because I am a gadget man. I love to see all that details. I still use SPG backup. But I like to see my tank. I like to see my students tank because I can do that with this watch up to 30 feet away. You can see their air and their consumption rates and you can give them back that information. That's pretty cool. So that would be an extravagance in terms of, do you really need it? Probably not, but why not? I like the dive computer because it gives you dive profile. Actually, I do study that after I've done, especially yeah. if it's a challenging dive or if a dive where I did a very rapid ascent or my dive computer scream at me for whatever reason, which I didn't understand. So it's actually quite yeah. important. Having that documented and see it after dive is also a good way of yeah, doing a quick debriefing. 
Yeah. Yeah, very important. Okay, the next question. Um, what do you value most in your friend? In any friends, I think trust is key, right? If I trust mm -hmm. somebody, whether it's a friend, a girlfriend, a dive buddy, whatever, that's to me is the most important thing. Without trust, there is nothing. Yeah, of course you can have associates or people you just hang out with maybe now and again, but especially in diving or just in real friends in life, trust is an integral part of that. And I used to always have this attitude. I was very hard to get friends with because I always had this attitude of, you need to earn my trust, which I feel like I had it reversed because now my attitude is, okay, I'll give you hundred percent trust from day one. And it's up to you what you do with that. You can throw it away or we can both use it and realize what it is. <clears throat> I think I've done even in relationships, something like that. I used to always be, oh, you have to build trust and all this, which yeah, I get it. But I, I feel like if I say, okay, I'll give you my trust. You give me your trust, I give you my trust and who's going to destroy it first or who's going to break it. So I've gone a little bit more like that, like a philosopher. I recently read a book, I can't remember the author now, one of the American and one of those few American writers that I can read beyond that first chapter. So the way he explained it, I'm paraphrasing it, is trust is a very delicate thing that yes, it takes time to build up the trust, that, but this first step always comes from ourselves making the choice to trust yeah, someone definitely. else. Even it means that defies your intuition. Yeah. If you don't make that step, it's really hard to build relationship. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I've made mistakes in the past because you, like almost thinking negatively from day one, thinking, okay, I don't trust you. You need to prove your trust to me. You're basically approaching it with the wrong attitude. You're like suspicious of people, which mm -hmm. is not cool. It's not good because then you already got a barrier up before you even start. So it's like, okay, why don't I try it the other way around and say, right, I give you my trust. They don't realize how easy it is to lose that trust because I'm not saying, okay, I trust everyone because that would be stupid. But if I say to you, I trust you hundred percent, we're in a relationship, for example, and it's as well as me, you can break that trust in one nanosecond and it's gone. But it's okay. If you can't appreciate it, then we'd either have to rebuild it, which is going to be way harder. Yeah. So really like that. And I think with scuba diving, same thing, I get a new student, basically they've got to trust me hundred percent from the first minute they go underwater because otherwise it's probably going to die. So I have to understand that they've given me their trust. And I really love that because that's part of building that strong friendship that goes on next after that is because they've trusted me. Yeah. And you bring them back alive. They've got a new experience and they've already built a massive foundation because they've just basically had that and trusted you and realized nothing bad happened. And so far everyone's come back alive. So it seems to be working fine. <laughs> Haven't lost one yet. That's the one record you want to maintain is actually very important. Not only under your care, but I think what you can later on take pride of is that if you have zero casualty somewhere else, even after the student left you, because that's a harder record to maintain. Yeah. Last question. So if we swap seat, say you were the host of this podcast yeah. and then I'm the interviewee, what question would you have for me to answer? I would say to you. What is your next plan for diving? Where, when, and why? <laughs> I have a bucket list. Let me think. Uh, where would I go? More realistic ones. Mm. Philippines. <laughs> well, Philippines then is the easy one. I haven't been back to a PG for a while, so I would love to go back diving in PG. 
to me, it's a little bit more diverse. And you've got, of yeah. course, Verde Island. Have you been to Verde? No, I haven't been to that one. Then that, that's got to go on your list. It's simple as that. It's just awesome. You have been listening to Service Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Gary Tyson, who has found scuba diving to be the best solution for him to satisfy his OCD, his passion for photography, his gifts for teaching, and his addiction to the ocean waters. If you are planning a scuba diving trip in the Philippines, do look him up. There's no doubt that he would be utterly useless in translating Tagalog. Luckily, his gold standard diving practice and perhaps charm should make up for it. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And even better, share with your friends and family so that they get to be inspired. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at servicetimechats.com.